This is an audio essay. To read the actual essay, go to mahanmccann.substack.com. The link is in the description on Spotify or whichever platform you're listening on. Oh! Philosophical Guide to Self-Development, Part 2. In the previous article, we discussed how the loss of wisdom and spiritual traditions that organized our attention and experience created the conditions for an attentional crisis. We delved into the function of attention and found a profound need for developmental guidance, some trade-offs between what we find salient and what we should find salient, and essentially the perennial problems of ignorance, self-deception, and self-destruction, and that somehow the answer to this problem lay in a thing called character, and how we can cultivate it. If the root cause of this attentional problem is the loss of wisdom and spiritual traditions that can offer us the cognitive and perceptual tools to manage attention properly, then how the hell do we get back into a tradition? The scientific worldview has made organised religion fairly hard to swallow, and more and more young people are identifying as nuns, no religions, with only some sort of vague spirituality to their name. But we all know that this alone is not sufficient, and this is why we see the resurgence of many virtue traditions like Stoicism and Buddhism in the West today to fill the void. What is virtue ethics? Ethos anthropos daemon. Character is fate. Heraclitus. Virtue ethics began in the West with Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, and in the East with Mencius and Confucius. Other Eastern traditions like Buddhism, Bushido, and even Ninjitsu are also virtue traditions. Virtue traditions are quasi-religions. They have some religious presuppositions, but often exist in a much less formalized, institutionalized, and rule-based way. Virtue ethics and virtue traditions can offer wisdom and spiritual traditions to help us cultivate our character, and that often line up with the functioning of attention very well. So well, you might say, as some thinkers do, that virtue ethics is the proper frame of reference for dealing with the ethics of attention. Virtue ethics is generally concerned with virtues and vices, motives and moral character, moral education, moral wisdom or discernment, friendship and family relationships, a deep concept of happiness, the role of the emotions in our moral life, and the fundamentally important question of what sorts of persons we should be and how we should live. Virtue ethics places character at the centre of our moral and ethical considerations, in contrast to other ethical theories like deontology, which places rules, or consequentialism, which focuses on consequences. These theories aren't separate from one another, and both consequences and rules play a role in virtue ethics, however, not a foundational role. Shannon Valor, philosopher of technology and the author of Technology and the Virtues, writes, A virtue ethic has the following characteristics. Number one, a conception of the highest human good. Number two, a conception of moral virtues as cultivated states of character manifested by exemplary persons. Number three, a conception of the practical path of moral self-cultivation. Number four, a conception of what human beings are generally like. Basically all of the things we need but no longer have in the West. Despite this overlap, each virtue tradition is unique and encourages different virtues which is a bit of a problem that we will look at later. 
For example, Aristotle identifies 14 virtues, mildness, courage, shame, temperance, righteous indignation, justice, liberality, truth, friendliness, dignity, endurance, magnanimity, magnificence, prudence. And these all sound wonderful, but in other virtue traditions like Homeric virtue ethics, some of these virtues would even be considered vices. What is the origin of these differences? Some current research argues the core virtues identified across virtue traditions are wisdom, courage, justice, temperance, humanity, and transcendence. And generally, a virtue is a positive disposition of character embodied in good habits and practices. And the opposite pole, a vice, is a bad character trait embodied in bad habits. These two poles form together to make our character, a particular pattern of being that can be defined as who we are from the outside or internally as a set of constraints that regulate our growth and development. So when we're talking about improving character, really we're talking about cultivating virtue and cutting down on vices. Common Practices of Virtue Traditions Although virtue traditions can't agree on the virtues, Shannon Valor's book Technology and Virtues claims to have abstracted out from the three main virtue traditions, Aristotelian, Confucian and Buddhist, these seven practices for what she calls moral self-cultivation which is pretty much the self-development we are discussing. This description is taken from riseup.net. First is moral habituation, a gradual transition from an uncultivated state to a morally habituated one. One is typically motivated and guided by moral exemplars in the community. One is affected by the repeated moral practice of right, or nearly right, conduct that strikes the appropriate mean relative to the circumstances a practice that gradually accustoms the individual to actions which were previously seen as painful or unattractive. This eventually leads to greater comfort, ease, pleasure, and even joy in performing moral action, enabling the cultivation of the virtue of temperate self-control or discipline, which in turn enables and strengthens the ongoing commitment to moral self-cultivation required for more specific moral habits to be developed and integrated the full development and integration of which constitutes the achievement of or increasing approximation to a genuinely virtuous character. That is, a cultivated state of moral excellence that promotes a life of flourishing with others. Number two, relational understanding. Ethical decisions take place in the context of specific human relationships and from the perspective of particular human roles. Virtue ethics is sceptical of an impartial observer or the veil of ignorance or other such thought experiments of other ethical systems. To behave ethically, you have to be attentive to these relationships and roles and to how they interact socially. Number three, reflective self-examination. Know thyself. You can best improve if you know your particular weaknesses. Otherwise, you have to rely on less useful general purpose advice. Regularly reflect on your specific daily behavior and examine it in the light of your ideals, aspirations, correct your faults and take pride in your improvement. Number four, intentional self-direction of moral development. This is an important stage in moral development in which you take responsibility for your character and identify the virtuous life as what you personally and sincerely aspire to. Maslow's hierarchy comes into play here, as this is harder to do unless you have some basic needs met first. Getting to this stage makes the process go a lot easier, as you realise being virtuous is what you want and what you value. Number five, perceptual attention to moral salience. Be attentive to the salient facts of the situation you're in that potentially call for or shape virtuous action. Understand the truth about those facts and also why they are morally salient. 
Unfortunately, Valor, the question of how to develop this sort of attention and insight is under-theorized in classical virtue ethics. However, this is what I did in the previous article, so you can check that out on the substack. Number six, prudential judgment. Cultivated ability to deliberate and choose well in particular situations among the most appropriate and effective means available for achieving a noble or good end. This is what Aristotle calls phronesis or practical wisdom. It is the difference between the nice child who is naturally virtuous and the virtuously morally mature adult. The child might do all right in some circumstances, but in novel situations, they don't have enough of a conscious grasp of their principles to extend and even to modify them appropriately in keeping with the spirit of virtue. The main features of phronesis are to identify morally salient features, relevant consequences, and to value properly in circumstances. Number seven, appropriate extension of moral concern. Especially in our new global technologically connected context, it takes a lot of deliberate attention to know how to appropriately extend moral concern appropriately. That is, to the right beings at the right time, to the right degree, and in the right manner. Valer says this is the most challenging to cultivate but mentions the exchanging self and others meditations in Mahayana Buddhism as one example. The stumbling block for virtue ethics. These practices are deeply valuable and we will return to them later to look in more detail and find out how we can implement them in routine as spiritual exercises. However, there's still a core problem here and one that can't simply be stepped over if we want to really take this process of moral self-cultivation seriously. As mentioned in the beginning, the virtue traditions can't agree on what virtues are most important, and hence they can't agree on what character is most important to have. Therefore, we don't have a target or an end for our moral self-cultivation unless we just subscribe to one of the traditions. And this turns out to be a pretty big problem. Alistair McIntyre, in his short history of ethics, points out that Homeric virtues and Aristotelian virtues, despite being from the same place, ancient Greece, with only a couple of hundred years between them, recommend completely different virtues. McIntyre points out that they do this because the culture of Homer and the culture of Aristotle had very different ideals. Homer's time valued a warrior king, while Aristotle's aimed at a contemplating rational philosopher. And so this brought about some difficulties because it seems that the ideal of virtue ethics is historically contingent and hence culturally and historically relative. The charge of relativism is a dire one, particularly in a modern secular age where we are trying to again create something that is absolute. You'll notice that throughout this essay I've not tried to define the particular virtues or even recommend any to you, which is what Valor tries to do in her book, which I think is a mistake. These virtues are not disembodied abstract ideals that we can just write down and teach to people. Understanding them is the end of a process, and to encourage people to engage in that process, we need a clear-cut goal to aspire towards. In other words, we need to clarify the end of our moral endeavour, a north star of this process of self-development, and that is what we will discuss in the next article.